So, we're going to get started. Um, I'd like to welcome everyone. Thanks for taking the time to call in. My name's Bonnie, and I'm going to be moderating the call today. And so I would like to welcome you all to the Community Matters Conference call. These are part of a series that we've been running for almost two years now, brought to us with huge thanks for, from the folks at the Orton Family Foundation. Uh, and we've created these as a way to connect the great people like you on the call with terrific ideas that are coming across the country. Today we're talking about open streets. And uh, for this conversation today, we're joined by Mike Lydon, Principal at the Street Plan Collaborative and the Open Streets Project, and Rory Beale, Co-Director of Fargo Streets Alive and Cass Clay, Healthy People Initiative and Director of the Dakota Medical Foundation. So we're looking for a really high, highly engaging and energizing conversation today. Um, what What we do ask is that uh, everyone get ready for questions and, and thank you all for submitting them so far via the Google Doc and, and the forms that we've sent out. Before we get started, I just wanted to go over the ground rules for the call. So we're going to start with some short introductions from our speakers and then we'll open up for questions and conversation and then finally finish up with a couple of ways for, for you guys on the call to take immediate action. Now, to get started, we do have quite a lot of people on the call today, uh, and so what I'd like to ask you to do is, is if everyone can check that they've put themselves on mute so that we can cut out a bunch of this background noise. So please just take a moment to make sure that you've, you've put yourselves on mute. I believe it's a star six on most phones uh, or hit the mute button, and that way we can be sure to, to hear all of the speakers and, and make sure that everyone uh, has a, a great ear to the phone. Um, but please do take a moment to do that. Secondly, we have a Google Doc available, um, and everyone should have access to the link for that. That's a place for everyone to take notes and to ask questions and share case studies and, and add in links to exciting projects that you've been involved with or you think are really great examples of this kind of work. Um, we do use it for, for questions and moderation. And so what I'd ask is if you do have a question that you'd like to ask, please write it down in the document. You'll see there's already a whole bunch of really great questions in there. And then add your name to the end of the question, and that way I'll be able to ask, to call you out and, and ask you to take yourself off mute and ask your question and join in the conversation. So it's a really great chance to chat with some of these people doing such amazing work on open streets. And that... that uh, question and answer document, note document, will also be made available as a PDF. And so we leave that open as, a, as an editable document for a while. So if you have answers or, or further questions, you can go in and write um, your own comments and, and questions uh, even after the call's done. We're also recording the call so we can make that available as a downloadable podcast as well. So a final reminder, if you've just joined us, to please put yourself on mute so that uh, we can give the, the speakers a great platform to share their story. And with that, I will hand over to Mike to kick us off. Great. Thank you, Bonnie, and thanks to everyone at Orton and Community Matters for doing these calls. Uh, this is the second one I've been able to participate in, so I'm excited to have uh, so much interest in this topic, which is one that we're very excited about. Um, as some of you probably have open or you know should be opening right now, there's a link there to a a short visual presentation that I put together. And you'll note that in the upper left-hand corner, there's a number for each of the slides. And so I'll probably call out the number 
that I'm on just so we can move through this together. And again, this is, this is pretty low-key, and I'm trying to just describe a little bit about um, where this project started and how it came to fruition, um, and also just some of the key highlights out of the, the project itself. And you'll note on this opening slide, slide number one, um, you can get a lot more information than is you know, ever possible to cover in one hour today at openstreetproject.org. Um, so with that, I'll move on to slide two. Um, so OpenStreets, I'm pretty sure that most people uh, listening right now are at least somewhat familiar with the concept, um, but really it's all about temporarily repurposing streets and uh, making them much more multi-purpose, so allowing people to walk, bike, skate, socialize, play music, play games, um, et cetera. Basically anything but driving is allowed on uh, OpenStreet routes. And uh, part of my... Um, first early exposure to this was living in the city of Miami. Um, I used to work for urban planning and consulting firm down there before I started my own company and uh, was very active with bicycle advocacy in the city. And we had a very supportive mayor um, at the time. And around 2007-2008, uh, the mayor and the city planning department and other uh, leaders in the community were looking to make some more changes to make it more an active and, and bicycle-friendly city. And uh, we brought to the table the idea of doing an open street. And at that point, um, just a few uh, larger American cities have started to implement their own. This is really, I'm speaking in the spring of 2008. Um, San Francisco was certainly an early model for us in Miami. And what you see in this image here in the slide is those kind of the before and after um, of what's called Flagler Street in the heart of downtown Miami. And what was so powerful to me during the first uh, what we called Bike Miami Days initiative was the transformation you could see literally on people's faces. The understanding of all of the principles of walkability, of creating livable places, of, of bike-friendly communities, all those ideas, which can actually be quite abstract, all of a sudden became very, very clear to a very wide number of people. In fact, thousands of people came out for the very first Bike Miami Days. And the, the success of this initiative um, inspired the mayor and the other politicians to make sure that it continued and it continued through 2008 for nine different iterations um, for, of course, a nine, you know, once a month for nine months. And uh, during this time, we were starting to get a, a vegetable master plan off the ground. And so it really just brought a whole lot of attention to the need and also create a whole a larger constituency of people who wanted to see these changes become more permanent in the way of more bike paths and, and a more bike-friendly city. Um, so moving on to slide three. Um, one of the great, you know, going back in history, one of the great uh, inspirations for Bike Miami Days and, and Open Streets in general is the city of Bogota in Colombia. Um, they started an Open Streets initiative back in 1974. And, it, you know, its history is worth the presentation itself, but uh, that city has, over time, grown their initiative to be every week uh, on Sundays, and they shut down more than 70 miles of connected streets into one massive, what they call cyclovia. And uh, you can imagine that the, the, the impact on the city is, is tremendous. And it really wasn't until about five or six years ago that this idea came to the United States in a major way and really inspired, you know, again, San Francisco and Miami and New York and Portland and, and Cleveland. And um, from there, the idea started to spread very, very rapidly. So when we were planning uh, the, the event in, in Miami, we were looking towards, towards those settled states, but also to Bogota as a model. But um, as we started to do this research project, question, you know, 
fast forward to about 2010, um, we realized there just weren't a lot of, of models that were available or best practices. So that became the inspiration for the guide. And if you move on to slide number four, um, what you'll see is we came across the information that in Seattle actually had the very first what we call an open street in 1965. So this even preceded Bogota and their great initiative. And so we, like I said, this is really a, an American-born um, um, effort that open streets, you know, were first here in the United States. And following Seattle's version in 1965, which is still around today, so, so the longest continuous open streets that we know of, um, San Francisco and New York also created um, uh, what we would call open streets. Now, they were not completely in, the, in the, the versions that we see today, which are largely heavily programmed in downtown cores, um, on Main Streets, etc., but in parks. And, um, you know, if you go to slide number five, um, what we found was that a lot of those very early initiatives in the 60s and 70s stuck around and were just one-off uh, either weekend events or annual events. Um, but, you know, if you look at this map here, the growth really started to take place after 2005, 2006. Uh, Cleveland was the first city to look at Bogota and try to replicate that specific model. And from there, it started to really scale. And you'll see the comparison there from 2005 to 2011, just the, the tremendous growth in implementation of open streets. Um, the, the graph at the bottom there shows that massive spike and how this, uh, this image is organized. You can go back to this in more detail later. We can research this more on the website. Is that we found in our researchers several different models on how these projects, uh, these initiatives are brought together. Uh, and you'll even note in the image there on the right, uh, the map on the right, the state of Kentucky has a statewide initiative where 115 or 116 out of 120 counties do it all together on the same day um, in October every year, which is extremely impressive. Um, moving on to slide number six, this is just an infographic that shows you the scale of communities um, that have implemented open streets. Um, in the upper left-hand corner there, you'll see Cornwall, New York, population 12,000. All the way up to the lower right-hand corner, there's New York City at 8, 8 million plus. So the, the initiative can be scaled to communities of any size. Um, we've certainly seen smaller communities in the past couple of years uh, bring open streets to fruition, which is really exciting. So it's not just for big American cities. It's not just for small towns. It's for communities of all scales uh, working on open streets. Finally, just number, slide number seven. Um, our guide is it's certainly available for free. Um, you can download the guide itself. Um, what I failed to mention so far is that the project itself, the Open Streets Project, um, began a collaboration between our firm, Street Plan, and the Alliance for Biking and Walking, which is a, a national nonprofit based in, in Washington, D.C. So you can go to the, the project's website. You can download the guide. It will give you a link to the Alliance's website. And from there, you can freely access all the information that's there. But what's really great is the website, which is very dynamic and um, it's constantly being updated by street plans and by the alliance with new case studies um, from around the country with new information. There's a, a news page which basically serves as a blog. And uh, if you're thinking about adding your own initiative, you can, or you're implementing your own initiative, or you have one that's not in our guide, you can use the website and add your case studies. And it's very, very easy to sell the basic information, um, type in, uh, you know, your, your, all the details and will be posted online. So in that way, it's an open source guide. So we're trying to just continually expand this project and reach more people uh, with the information that we've collected so far. Uh, I think with that, I'll hand it over to Rory. Okay. This is Rory in uh, 
Fargo, North Dakota. So thanks for having me on the call. Um, uh, we've been doing uh, Open Streets events here for, we just finished our third year. And um, I, I'm going to reiterate what Mike said uh, about the, the, the pictures of people's faces at these events. I actually, before we started in 2009, I traveled to Mexico City with some friends um, for a little adventure, but we made sure that we got to experience their Open Streets events. So I exposed uh, six leaders in, from, from Fargo, North Dakota, to the event, and then I did one in Portland, Oregon. Um, so I got to feel firsthand. And based, and based on the list that Mike gave you, you know, I think if, if you're thinking about doing an event like this, um, it's one thing to hear about it, and I think it's a complete other thing to actually experience it. And there are enough of them happening now that uh, you might be able to pack up your leaders and, and make a short trip to, to get them to experience it. We've got about 160,000 people in the Fargo-Moorhead area, and I work for a private medical foundation. I lead a, a healthy living initiative. Um, ours is focused on childhood obesity, reducing that by 20% by, by 2020. And the Open Streets event, we call it Streets Alive, is one of our cornerstone pieces to our initiative. It's the one piece um, that really draws attention to the work that we do. You know, nobody gets uh, really excited about school wellness policies and physical activity and child care, but an event that can draw thousands of people a strategic event, it's easy to get people to know about you and what you're doing. And so, so Streets Alive has done it, done that for us. Um, this is our third year. I said we do the event two times each summer, once mid-July and once um, the last weekend in August. And we've done that each of our years. Um, the first year we did that, we had a route that was about six miles long, um, tried to emulate what we thought Portland and Madison, Wisconsin had done. And, and the reality is, with a, a route that was six miles long, you could take 10,000 people. And if you spread them over six miles over five hours, you really, it's hard to create the density that gives the, the energy to the event. So our, our event has evolved to a three mile route. And we do it twice a year. It goes, it goes through our downtown district, um, because that's where there's the densest population of people. We wanted convenience to be, uh, that, that's a, that's a big predictor of people's physical activity. Um, and so, Twice a year, um, uh, not everybody was excited to do it twice a year. They thought once was enough. The reality is if you start to organize one of these events, you see all the work that goes into it, it takes about 20% more work and 10% more budget to do it a second time. And, and unlike a competitive road race that, you know, people are going to show up, they've prepared for, they're going to show up wind, rain, storm, um, an event like this isn't like that, and weather could have a really negative bearing. So we do it twice because we like it and we think that's good, um, but also it, it prevents us from being shut out some year if we really had bad weather. Um, and then along our route, we, uh, we have little destinations that um, people can stop at, Eat and Greet Street where there's veggie kebabs and, and um, farmer's markets and there's places for fitness classes along the route. Um, our event costs about $27,000 a year. And that's a big number. It sounds like it is. I, actually, I think it's, it's pretty frugal compared to what communities our size spend on the event. And so we do two events, and we do a, a third smaller event in our sister city, West Fargo. Um, so it's about $27,000. I work for a medical foundation. They pay for my time. Um, we have a, a public health organization in Clay County, Minnesota. That's Moorhead. That's the other city that's involved. And they have a contract with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota. So they have a person that helps me organize the event. 
and they are our major sponsor for the event. In addition, I provide, I recruit additional sponsorship to, uh, to help support our event. Um, so $27,000, I will say the biggest chunks of money. Um, almost all of our media, uh, television, radio, newspaper is in kind. Um, but billboard, but when you do things in kind, you kind of are at the whim of the media to, to, uh, to, for them to determine when you're going to and where your, your information is going to show. We do spend about $13,000 on billboards because then we can define when it's going to be and where it's going to be. And, um, so billboards and t-shirts for our volunteers eat up about $19,000. Our cities work really closely with us. They help provide barricades. We have to spend a, a small amount on barricades. Um, that the city doesn't have. We have to, one city doesn't provide police officers for us at, at no cost, so we have to pay for that. Um, so we think we get by pretty frugally um, to get the word out. We also use social media. We, you know, we have a, a website, fmstreetsalive.org. That's our main site. And FM Streets Alive is on Facebook, and FM Streets Alive is on Twitter. And so we can communicate with uh, the generations that use those media um, through, through those mediums. And so we have felt like um, that, that this is an event that has, has really provided us a, a soft platform to get people thinking about healthy living. We're not saying don't drive your cars, which could turn people off, but maybe subliminally or softly, that's the message we hope gets through. We think that healthy communities are, uh, are those that are built for mixed use, and that's a message that we can kind of softly get through this uh, event. So it's giving us a way to, uh, a platform to kind of feature things we want to feature with healthy communities, to feature groups that are really promoting healthy communities. And now this last year we had about 11,000 people that participated in our two events. We had 5,000 the first year, 5,500 the second year. And I really think that three years is a reason, that's what we hoped we could arrive by three years. And, uh, in fact, um, we feel like, like we kind of have. So, this has been a, there, there's been a lot of learning. I, I think three years is a reasonable amount of time. Um, I, I would say if there's a bit of advice to getting started, it is certainly be willing to do uh, a fair amount of work up front and in terms of putting barricades in place and, and doing that legwork. You might find over time you've got a budget to not do it, but uh, I could do anything on this event because I've done it all in some way, shape, or form in, in the three years that we've existed. So that's what I have for you. Fantastic. Thank you, Ori, and thanks, Mike, for the introduction. So I'm going to dive straight into questions. Um, and the first one here is anonymous, so I'll, I'm going to read this one out, and then uh, we're going to throw it open. Um, this one is under the subject, Making the Case. And the question is, I'd like to hear some specifics about the impact on economic development, not just that it makes your town seem cooler. What can I say to council that would get them on board? Mike, do you want to take that first off? Sure. Um, yeah, that's a really fantastic and, and a question that we hear a lot. Um, the economic uh, data that's come out of um, Open Streets is actually still somewhat limited, although it's now starting to expand. Um, the Washington um, University in St. Louis, they've got a couple of studies now that are looking at a whole host of benefits, um, and things that have come out of their own Open Streets initiative. And what they found uh, through their research, as well as what many um, uh, business owners will say anecdotally, is that Open Streets are fantastic for exposure. Um, when you bring 
thousands of people to a main street or to a neighborhood, um, what you're generally finding is that people are spending money. Um, in St. Louis, I found that the average person spent, um, you know, the vast majority of uh, the uh, attendees, I think more than 80%, spent $10 or more along the route. Um, and that's thousands of people that wouldn't have been there otherwise. So it's had a really good local impact on the economy. Um, and again, you get people who come from the whole region for a lot of these, these open street initiatives. And so people from around the region get exposed to restaurants and stores and um, and other businesses that are along these routes, which even if they don't decide to purchase something that day, now have a better understanding of, of what they are. Um, and this is a really great way, like I said, as a, as a regional draw and a regional impact. Um, we're constantly trying to find more, more of the economic data. We've got some research out of um, out of Bogota, where they've looked at different initiatives from around the world and have found that the, from the, the per user cost of open streets um, it is extremely low. Um, I think they, under a dollar per user generally, and what they find is that that's a much cheaper way to provide public health infrastructure, um, exercise in community than almost any other um, means. Um, so there, there are benefits. It's certainly trying to be quantified. Um, but you can, you know, it's hard to quantify happiness as well and people, um, you know, desire to be in places. But, uh, I would certainly look at, um, some of the research that we have collated in our resources section on open streets for a little bit more specifics. Um, but also just to, it's not all completely rosy. Um, you know, some businesses won't do as well as others. Um, economically, you know, if you've got uh, a washer and dryer store and you're selling appliances, they're probably not going to fly off the shelves in the bike basket that day. But again, there's the opportunity for those businesses to connect to a much wider audience. And so we've seen smart business people, even if they're not making a lot of sales that day, participate, support, and even advertise and be um, outside on the sidewalks trying to build awareness about their, their products and what they're selling. So, um, again, you, you will definitely expect restaurants and, and retailers, uh, some retailers to do quite well and others may not. So you need to know that going into it and be able to um, articulate to people who might be naysayers in the retail and, and you know, um, that community that uh, it, there might be a longer-term effect they can experience out of open streets. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll add uh, from Fargo-Moorhead, I've really never been asked about this. Um, and, I, and for me to be able to close streets down Broadway in our downtown, I met two times with our downtown community bar- business partnership to share with them what the idea was. And they could have prevented this event from happening if, if they had wanted. Um, you know, when I present this event to groups and when I did, there are a couple of things, and they aren't specific examples about economic impact, but there's a lot of evidence that young couples decide and prefer to plant themselves in communities that are vibrant, healthy communities. And so you show up in Fargo-Moorhead on the day of Streets Live, you're going to see a lot of people riding bike and walking, and there's no negative that comes with that, and there's a whole lot of positive when it comes to uh, creating an atmosphere that people are going to want to have a family and, and raise kids in. Um, the other thing that I think is often um, forgotten is avoidable costs. This is about these events can really be about health, and um, I mean we'd have to be under a rock to not know that unhealthy living, physical inactivity, unhealthy eating has tremendous health care costs that are, are largely preventable. And so it, it, we might not realize it in hard money today, but um, a healthy community is is one that's going to thrive even economically because they are healthy. Great point. Great. And, uh, Rory, you mentioned uh, a little about backlash. There's a great question here uh, from 
Dallas Smith. Dallas, you on the line? The question, uh, I'll, I'll read this out. If you, if you are on the line, please do, do take yourself off mute and, uh, and jump in here. Um, I'll paraphrase in case we've, we've lost you. In our community, comments about making the streets more pedestrian and bicycle friendly often result in a few highly vocal people making heated remarks about the government wanting to take away our cars and move everything into high rises. What kind of backlash has been experienced by others who promote open streets and how has it been overcome? So, Rory, you mentioned a couple of a couple of uh, comments about how you've seen this play out. Um, can you give some specific examples about how you've dealt with uh, people that are, are less than positive about the program? Yeah. Well, you know, um, those have been mostly residents, and so our business community has been has been very supportive. Um, we have had some vocal people, and you know, we we approach this very um, positively in all of our, our messaging, and that is um, that we're opening the streets for this big physical activity festival, so we don't focus on closing it to cars so much because of that, the reason that, that, that this person who wrote the question. Um, in our first year, we had some residents along the route that, frankly, didn't think it was very convenient. They were going to have to drive a block to get off the route, and somebody was going to have to escort them in that this event was going by their house. So... Um, a small number of local people wrote to our city administrator and to our chief of police and, to, and, and created such a stir that our police liaison and engineer from the city really advised us that we were only going to be able to do the event once in the second year. Well, thankfully, um, cool, cool heads prevailed, and we had some city leaders that got on our side, so we were able to do it two times. But what we did to pre-plan for it in the year two was we made sure that we provided contact information for our city administrator and our police chief um, leading up to and immediately after our events and encouraged all of our supporters and people who attended um, via social media and even in person to make sure they called and let them know that this was a good thing. And, and, and it's never been an issue since. Okay. And, Mike, have, how, how about you? Well, yeah, I, I'm, you know, I've not been uh, on the ground being the day-to-day -day organizer of these initiatives, and so we've certainly documented and heard some stories, but generally everything that we hear is uh, usually has a very positive outcome, and that there are, as Roy mentioned, very few um, naysayers. So I think one of the things you can do to, to um, you know, in advance to prevent that as much as possible is, is as your organization or your uh, city or your neighborhood group is trying organizers thinking about organizing an open streets initiative is really think about the coalitions of people you can bring together and start to educate them, whether it's one-on-one -on -one in a small group presentation, going door-to-door -door and knocking on you know, local businesses, and being, you know, really explaining what this is all about. Um, it's not about moving everybody into high-rises. Um, you know, it's not about taking away your car and, you know, de-emphasize that as much as you can and talk about the community aspects. Um, to some folks, you want to talk about the economic aspects and the benefits and the and the vision there, and tailor your message to each of the people you might be talking to. And if you can build that in a collaborative way ahead of time before you even decide what the final logistics are, then the, the chances of you getting more um, flashback is, is going to be minimized. Um, so we see very successful initiatives around the country have, have done just that, um, really have reached out um, long in advance and, and built the awareness. And, of course, you know, now we, we're very excited because we're seeing more people send people to our website to see what this is all about and to use the resources that are that are hosted there 
to, um, to make the case. I'm, I'm going to add two quick things. We do send a mailer to, to all of the residents along our route, and we have each year, so they'll know that uh, the event is coming. And this next year we're actually going to use some yard signs because we know we've got some big supporters, um, and yard signs are very inexpensive, so in the week before the event that will identify that it's coming, and anybody who lives on the route that travels in the, uh, along it will will see these yard signs and, and have another indicator that, that something will be happening. <laughs> That's and one great. thing, and one final thing too, is just to think about, um, you know, during and after the event. So, you, you know, you might, may not have resources. Uh, not every community is going to have resources to do a really detailed survey or evaluation. But if you can get a, a host of volunteers, uh, even a small group, to just get some basic, you know, ask some basic questions, get some basic answers on how did you, you know, as a participant, how did you feel about this initiative today? Did it make you feel positive about your community? Did you spend some money? I mean, if you can get a couple of those responses and and, and collate those together, then you might have a little bit of information or at least uh, some qualitative information to share um, as an evaluation tool uh, to, to spread back to the community and say, look, we found a really positive response overall, and that will give us a bit of, um, you know, hopefully a bit of inspiration to try it again if it's success. That's a, that's a great point, Mike. So actually using the event to collect some data to back up your case for the next time you go into the planning phase. Um, I want to call out uh, Francesca Taylor, if you're on the line. Um, you've got a great question here that, that I think is a, a great carry-on from, from this conversation. Francesca, are you with us? Maybe not. Um, Francesca's question here is, how do you sell the idea to local law enforcement and traffic engineers who are wary of closing streets. So we've talked about getting residents on board, getting council on board, but I imagine there's quite a different argument that you need to use around local law enforcement and, and traffic. Um, Rory, in your experience, what are the what are the arguments? And if you can get specific here, um, what what do you have to say to people to actually bring them on board to to get behind the project? Well, this certainly proved to be a more challenging um, task for us because certainly the law enforcement's job is to make sure that they um, keep residents safe on the roads, um, that they that people who expect to travel in a certain route will continue to be able to do that. And now when you're suggesting that they won't be able to and that you could have skateboards and kids walking freely and rollerblades, um, I think the first thing is to appreciate that, um, to understand where they're coming from. Um, the reality is these are very safe events, and we know that, for example, somebody riding a bicycle is much safer if they know how to ride a bicycle safely to be on the streets than to be on a sidewalk. And so if we have these streets and we want people to use them, um, this is an event that can draw attention to it, and it can increase the number of people that might consider that mode of transportation. Uh, in Minneapolis-St. Paul, for example, they've noticed that as the bicycle ridership has gone up, the number of auto bicycle interactions has gone down, presumably because people become more accustomed to seeing that mode of transportation. So, um, and, and there's good evidence that a lot of people don't drive automobiles. So an event like this can raise some awareness about um, helping to make it easier and improving accessibility for people who might not. Um, but, but even with that said, 
it it might take some communications beyond the law enforcement. It might take a, a sympathetic city council person to help navigate through that field, which, uh, in my experience, can be a little challenging. And so what you're saying is you you need to build a, an argument that speaks directly to the problems that, that law enforcement or engineers are trying to solve. Yes. Uh, and then it sounds like you it's it's also really helpful to have uh someone in a, a position of authority in in the local government that can help to promote your cause from a different angle as well. Yes, we've needed to do that. Now, if some of the communities on the call, if you have road races in your city already, um, it's likely that there's somebody in the police department that has some experience with road closures. And um, that might be a person that's a little more sympathetic. It might be a first connection. Um, if your city has um, bicycle officers, that's another. That's that's maybe another front door to go to to find out who your contact may be or to uh, to get some advice on how to approach this um, this new type of an event. And what's the best way for people to find out if they have those things in their communities? How do they take that first step? Um, well, that's a good question. Um, I, I think maybe you could hunt down a if you've got a, a prominent road race contact the uh, the race director um, because obviously they've had to close uh, the road for a 10k or a half marathon um, ask them they, they've had to go through the process and uh, I think almost all communities would have something like that I, I think that'd be a good a good way to um, find out who the key contact people are I would say it's really really um, it's really common that most communities have something like that um, that already exists and that's where we see strategically people work, just like Gloria is saying, um, build off of those existing events and then, you know, pitch it further by saying this is not just about running or bike race. Um, it's not a race at all. In fact, it's about all sorts of different activities. So it reaches a much broader segment of the population and therefore could have perhaps have more utility to the community than just a single uh, running race. Um, another element of the engineering and road street closure um, issue is um, is thinking about where and how you apply the route, where you plan the route. Um, I also noticed there was an earlier question about state roads, which tend to be, you know, wider, faster, and, and, and more difficult to, to shut down. Um, you know, what, what generally we see is that these types of initiatives work best where there's already a grid of streets in place, so more traditional downtowns where there are many different routes to, um, to reroute traffic along. Um, the, the main technique that we see used is um, one of hard closures and one of soft closures. And by soft closure, that means that the street or intersection would be managed by a, a traffic control officer or, or a police officer, or even oftentimes a volunteer, um, while uh, lesser minor intersections would be, would be hard closures, so they'd be completely close to traffic. So you would just have to basically discover where um, the primary streets are and what sort of circulation will have to remain within if at all, for people driving. Um, and at those places, manage those intersections a little bit more carefully. Um, but otherwise, um, there's definitely opportunities uh, with these grid street networks to create um, you know, conversions and, and parallel routes to make sure that the, the route itself is as, uh, as safe as possible and as comfortable and inviting as possible. Um, and, and in some cases, you see uh, multiple you know, multi-lane roads. We'll um, uh, take one lane away and dedicate that to biking and walking and skating and everything else and keep one of the lanes open for slow traffic as well. So there's options that are out there um, that just need to be considered as you plan your route carefully. 
Thanks, Mike. That's a, that's a great insight. And it actually leads into a great question by Becky Maxney from Edmonton. Becky, are you on the line? She says we've got a, a lot of questions with, without their owners on the line today. So that's okay because I'm going to read it out. So uh, following on, uh, Mike, to what you were just mentioning, are there any changes to the streetscape that can make it more appealing? In a way that would get more people to participate, and I think generally, um, if you if you can both talk a little about how you engage people, there's a, a great question in in that's been submitted earlier around how to engage elderly people uh, who might be concerned about their safety and participating in a multi-use zone where there are a lot of bikes and skaters um, when where they might be walking. So, can you talk about streetscaping and um, and, and how you get people engaged. Rory, do you want to sure. kick us off? Right. Yeah. Um, well, certainly that's the, the, the key for the entire event is engaging people. And so that starts with um, we have many soft closures on our route, and that's because that's what the law enforcement will allow us to do. So we, uh, we, have, we split our five-hour event into two shifts, and so we have volunteers at each of those intersections, multiple volunteers. Uh, and so we've, we recruit about 100 to 120 volunteers, which when I say that number can sound a little overwhelming. Um, we engage our local high school and college athletic teams, and life becomes a lot easier when you're trying to recruit and engage six or seven teams instead of 120 individuals. And there's some, some natural energy that comes from young bodies on the route, and we encourage volunteers to bring hacky sacks and um, make uh, hopscotch on the road with chalk. And so that, that's one of the big ways that we engage. we engage. We've got 100 people that are there over the course of the day that uh, participants are seeing and I think helps to make the uh, the event much more engaging. Um, we, we've had a – we've struggled. We haven't gotten much of a senior population. We've, re- we've gone to uh, actual senior homes, and transportation has been a big enough issue that they haven't chosen to bring people out. And so for us, um, that that hasn't materialized to this point. Um, we're, we're hoping this year we're going to add a, a little cultural food festival um, because we're we're heavily Scandinavian and German here, but we have a, a, a significant population of New Americans, and we haven't been able to really attract an, a diverse population at this point. So we're going to have a cultural food festival, um, and we're going to invite a community garden that has. Um, 20 new American families, and there's going to be a tomato tasting uh, uh, event and some other food things and cultural music, and that's one of the things we're hoping to do to engage a population that, that currently hasn't. Otherwise, we have little locations along our three-mile route that we've given kind of cheesy little monikers. We have an elementary school that we call Education Avenue, and there are... Um, little kids' fitness with the YMCA and the Boys and Girls Clubs that work together. We have in a park what we call Activity Alley, and that's local fitness centers teaching um, exercise classes. Uh, on a bridge that connects our, our two cities and states, we call it Eat and Greet Street, and that's where we've got uh, currently have like veggie kebabs that are grilled by one of our local uh, uh, college athletic boosters. And so those are the ways that we try to engage the people um, to create uh, an atmosphere along the route as well. And I'll say this last year, 
um, our greatest success was uh, we have a local college uh, a, a summer track club, and they wanted to pole vault in the streets, and we had a coach that wanted to do it, and our insurance allowed us to do it. So um, on Broadway in Fargo, we had about 30. We had a pole vault pit set up, and we actually had a, a sand pit because we have an Olympic triple jumper who is from uh, North Dakota State University. We had pole vaulters vaulting in the streets, and we had uh, a couple thousand people watching a, an Olympic triple jumper uh, do her thing into a, <laughs> a portable sand pit uh, on the streets of Broadway in Fargo, North Dakota. Terrific. Um, Mike, can you, can you give us a, a sense of, of what, what you guys are doing um, to encourage engagement, and if there are any specific features of the built environment or the streetscape that, that people should think about when they're planning the route? Sure. Well, I think in, in, in general, to, to back up just a little bit, um, you know, these initiatives with Open Streets can be about a lot. They're about a lot of different things. You know, there are a lot of a lot of overlapping issues that are all related and linked. But we find successful ones kind of choose, you know, a couple of different angles in terms of marketing. Is it about purely getting people out and talking and being part of a community? Is it about public health? Um, you know, is it about um, thinking about better streets and and how they're designed? And so finding not necessarily a dominant theme, but taking a sort of a specific angle can help clarify what the event is actually about for participants, which in turn gets them out to participate. Um, you know, we, there's kind of two different types uh, generally of open streets, those with programming and those without. Um, those without programming tend to be a lot uh, more inexpensive. They happen more in parklands or along parkways, uh, regional parks, things like that, uh, where those with programming tend to happen at neighborhood centers and downtown and in the cores of cities. Um, with programming, obviously, you're bringing people to um, to put on those events. You can have their own networks, which you know can expand the level of engagement, expand the awareness, expand the attendance. Um, everything from you know farmers markets to dance classes to live music um, to uh, to food vending, I mean, all these things can take place and really overall provide a level of engagement that's fantastic for a community. Um, in terms of reaching or allaying some of the fears with with um, with aging populations. Some of the things we've seen done um, is providing areas where you have to dismount the bike. Um, sometimes those are uh, in front of or connected to parks. So places where um, you know, seniors or Asian populations may be uh, accustomed to going to for, for social opportunities and making sure there's not bikes whizzing by um, at 15 miles an hour. Um, you know, in congested areas, if you find that in the heart of your downtown, uh, the route gets really packed for whatever reason. Um, you might actually use cones to separate people walking from people biking. Um, we see that done in New York and, and, and several other cities. Um, in terms of engaging a wider demographic of people, um, it's logistically more challenging and it can be more expensive. Um, but if you have the ability to do it, we look at initiatives that actually take the, the route and it's not fixed necessarily every single year. They move it around uh, either on an annual basis or they move around to different parts of the city um, so a couple different initiatives over the course of the year. Um, you know, San Francisco and Portland have been well known for doing that, where they bring the routes to lots of different neighborhoods so they get to engage a different population of people and community people with each, with each um, iteration. Um, so that's definitely another great way, if you can pull it off, to bring more people to the, um, the idea of open streets and to participate. Um, and then finally, I think what we're seeing more of is exactly what Lori just described in layering on more initiatives to um, to open streets. So whether it's a food festival or a 
great example in, in out of San Antonio was they did what's called a Better Block Festival. And so um, in the heart of the, the route of, uh, in, in San Antonio, they had a, a bunch of people basically with very inexpensive materials mock up what a different streetscape would look like um, by traffic calming it, by putting more seating, more activities on the street, kind of visualizing or, or rendering in real time, if you will, of what that block or that street could become if there was more permanent investment made. So it wasn't just about the activity of walking and biking in, in the community. It's also about um, physically looking at the streets and how they could be improved in the long term to accommodate what was happening there temporarily. Um, we think that's a really smart way to bring people together and to help them um, realize that uh, change is possible. Um, it doesn't have to be for one day. It could be permanently. We can build support that way. Great. Better Block's a terrific project. Uh, I think we'll make sure that we have a link in the document so that people can check that out. Uh, what I'd like to do now, we have a whole bunch of questions that have come in around logistics. So what I'd like to try is, uh, Mike and Rory, if you're ready for this, is a bit of a quick-fire question round. Um, if you, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions that should have pretty short, snappy answers. So if you wouldn't mind... Uh, Try and keep your answers to the next couple of questions super short and brief, just so that we can pull this information out of your heads and get it into the ears of, of everyone listening. You up for that? Yep. Sure. All right. You ready? <laughs> ready to roll? Yep. Ready to roll. Uh, all right. First one, what's the typical budget of an administrative initiative? Mike, you better take it. I said ours is... Uh... Ours is 27. We could certainly do it for less. Um, we've tried to be really frugal, uh, and that sounds weird that I'm saying really frugal when we spend $13,000 on uh, billboards. Um, but uh, I think anybody who's going to do this wants to look five and ten years down the road and figure out, all right, are we going to be able to do it that long, and how can we set it up as economically as we can to, to be able to do that? Rory, can you give us a little breakdown of, of where the major buckets of costs are? Yep. Um, so... It, it ends up being about $15,000 on communications, so billboards, uh, print pieces, flyers, um, banners. Um, it's about five, uh, $5,000 for T-shirts, and that's the one area we feel like we maybe splurge a little bit. We get the, the shirt that everybody loves. It's soft. Uh, we pay a little bit more for it, and um, we give that to all of our volunteers, and we also use it during the year to kind of to, to give out um, at, at different events promoting. We spend $2,000 on traffic control um, because what our city doesn't provide us, um, we have to get from a local um, traffic organization, and they, they're recognized as a sponsor, too, because they give us a great deal. Um, many cities, the cities will do that. I know in Minneapolis, though, they have to do all of it themselves. The city doesn't help them. Um, in the city of Moorhead, uh, their police department does not provide uh, the police service at no cost, so we have to pay. It ends up being, uh, I think, a couple thousand dollars for police supervision. Fargo doesn't require any police supervision along the route, and so that, that's pretty close to our total of twenty-seven thousand dollars. Okay, great. Um, and and Sorry. Go ahead. What? Who are the Who are the primary financial contributors? So where are you getting the money from? Um. So certainly my time is paid for by Dakota Medical Foundation and part of our budget. Um, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota is uh, uh, our, our biggest contributor, 
and then we have bike shops and um, fitness centers and local hospitals that provide anywhere from we've got a a thousand dollar level, a twenty five hundred, and a five thousand dollar level, and so they they are the ones that provide us with hard money, and then uh, our media outlets, you know, they say they provide us with ten to fifteen thousand uh, dollars of media time. You know, it's, you, you probably wouldn't pay that kind? much. Yes, in kind. Yes. And uh, so that's on top of the twenty-seven thousand figure. Yes, that's in addition to. Okay, great, Mike. Do you uh, do you have some other estimates? Yeah, just very very quickly. I mean, we've seen these things done for as little as a few thousand dollars, all the way up to about half a million or more. Um, it really depends on the size of your city and how long your route is to be. Um, I would say, in what we've seen in our research, is uh, a route average of around a mile or so, um, which is a nice length uh, for many communities. Uh, will probably cost you between uh, fifteen and thirty thousand dollars. So what we're seeing, in, uh, you know, what Lori's describing is actually pretty common, and we actually see a larger breakdown towards police time as being the largest cost. Um, that's usually a very big challenge for communities is, is overcoming the police overtime that is sometimes required. Um, so I have the last thing I'll say on this, and you can certainly go and look at our website and find more resources or contact me for more information, but um, one creative way of dealing with that problem uh, actually comes out of Miami where uh, the police chief, who was a really big supporter of the idea of like Miami Days, um, actually asked his um, officers to, um, to work on that day uh, of the event but take a different day off instead that week. So he just shifted people's schedules around, and because he was the leader and really behind this, the officers were more than happy to do it, so there was actually no overtime that was accrued. And so that the cost for police from around 30000 down to about 5000 So, you Perfect. know, if you have a, a willing partner in the police department, you, know, you certainly need their presence and want them to participate and be a part of your initiative, but there's some creativity that's you know, probably out there where you can lower the cost and put more of that money into communications and outreach and encouragement. Fantastic. All right, so what's a typical turnout? And I know this is going to vary significantly, um, but uh, what what are some estimates that people can, can start to think about? <laughs> well, I can only share our own. You know, in our first year we had um, 3,500, 4,000 at one of our bigger events and 1,700 at another. And 1,700 mm-hmm. sounds like a big number, but, again, you spread that over three miles, and, and it's not so much. This last year we had about 8,000 and at, at, at the August event and 3,500 in uh, July. Um, so we feel like those were numbers that um, start to get people's attention and mm-hmm. indicate that the event has really arrived and that we don't have to really work to justify it, that, that it does exist. Great. And, uh, uh, Mike, have you... What have you seen? Yeah, New York and L.A., obviously our biggest cities, they get over 100,000 people to participate each time, which is phenomenal. Um, but a city like Madison, Wisconsin, usually sees about 25,000. Um, you know, if you're a community of uh, you know, 100,000 or less, I think getting 5,000 people out is a really fantastic and very achievable number. Um, you know, the, there's only been a few initiatives that we've seen where the turnout was lower than expected. Oftentimes it's more than, and it, and it tends to grow year on year especially if you tend to grow the number of initiatives that you're having. Even just going from one to two a year can be a really great thing in terms of uh, turnout and attendance um, at the initiative. So, um, you know, if you're a small community, you know, you got to think about it proportionally. Um, so I would just leave, leave it with that. Great. 
Um, let's talk accident liability and insurance. How do you how do you handle that? Um, we we actually most community members or community events would have to submit an application to the city, but the city is one of our partners um, with our public health department. So we go through our partner, public health, and they just simply submit to the city what the intentions are, and it's mm-hmm. it's covered. Um, on both of our cities under the city's insurance, and so we we don't pay Perfect. anything. Yeah, if you're not working with your, your city, you're not going to get the events done, and typically if they're a willing partner, they will uh, insure the event. Fantastic. Uh, what about uh, estimating your attendance? Well, you know, early, and, and Mike, you maybe have something in your book that this, the Centers for Disease Control had a, a sampling method that they uh, recommended. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, and so we work with North Dakota State University's exercise science department. Uh, they have a professor there who assigns as graduate student, and they find undergrads to do the sample. They count the number of participants the, the first 15 minutes of every hour, and, and there's a formula then that, that they use to estimate the, the total number, and, and that's how we get our number. Yeah, you see a range of, of different ways of counting participation, and oftentimes it's done completely as an estimate, you know, and and that can be um, that can be somewhat accurate. It can be very far off. And so, um, as Lori just mentioned, partnering with a local university is a really great thing to do. Actually, at a research center, because they are going to have a methodology that might be a bit more accurate and can contribute to um, the success of your initiative in terms of marketing it. So you know a little bit more clearly who showed up, how many, and particularly what the more active times were. And and to that point, I also say that we've seen a lot of communities. Um, adjust their their time. Sometimes the initiatives will find will plan for too many hours. Sometimes it's not enough. They need to expand the hours. Sometimes it's on Saturday. Sometimes it's on Sunday. So yeah, as you're starting your first initiative, expect to learn from each one of them, and you'll make key adjustments as you go uh, for each version, so that it gets uh, stronger and stronger and has more people that come out. Terrific. All right. How common is it for municipalities to charge a fee for street closures? And are there strategies to available to get fees waived? Uh, we uh, we don't have to pay, uh, so I can only speak for our own. Um, we did have to pay for police officers uh, the first year in Fargo, and we do still do in Moorhead. But there's uh, I've worked hard to make the event feel like it is the city's event, and there's they have mm-hmm. significant contributions, so we don't have to pay anything. Great. Yeah, that's definitely one of the in-kind contributions the city can provide if they have such a permit um, fee. Um, we we commonly don't see that actually, though. I don't know of many examples of any off the top of my head where um, that was a barrier to organization um, with open streets. Uh, we have seen some cities actually ask vendors um, along the route they're going to set up that they have to pay a, a fee. Um, and so when I say vendor, I don't mean the people selling things, but also nonprofits and other community organizations. And they have a couple of different tiers. You know, you know, one example where it's $50 for a booth for the day, which is $25. You know, sorry, $50 if you're a for-profit business and $25 if you're a nonprofit business. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you guys a high level of participation, that can certainly offset some of your costs. Um, but likely probably not a big chunk of it. So certainly we don't see fees associated with making these initiatives happen. Mike, we, we do that every year. We generate $1,000 at each event doing just that. Okay, that's right. Maybe I was thinking of your case study. <laughs> Terrific. 
All right, I'm going to start the final question. Um, this is actually the, the question that I typically ask to wrap up these calls. So, Robin Mower, if you're on the line, um, please jump in. Otherwise, I will ask this question for you. You with us, Robin? Doesn't sound like it. Everyone's being shy today. Is anyone have to work on that. <laughs> uh, so the, the last question that I want to ask, um, and uh, I will still rub and phrasing because it, it's quite lovely. So both to Mike and Rory, what is the single factor that you believe is key to success apart from will and enthusiasm of an organizer or champion? So if people are thinking about taking all the stuff that we've talked about today and all of their great ideas that they've been working on, what is the single factor that they need uh, to make their event a success um, apart from their own personal drive? Well, I think it won't become a success unless it happens. And so to get uh, the city, the key people in the city and the business sector to be involved, to not only get them to uh, accept it but to support it, I think that is the, the single greatest factor to laying the foundation for future success. And I would say uh, really tailoring the message, what this is about, being very, very clear in your communication. And ultimately, it's really about building collaborations and, and um, working together and reaching out to a wide variety of people who will help um, help you get this initiative off the ground and become your champions and partners as you move forward in the future. So you certainly cannot go at this alone, and you need to work with a very broad coalition of people to make it happen. And when, when that's done, you know, you get the great benefit of pulling off on open streets, and normally they're very successful, but you also get a whole bunch of new colleagues, collaborators, and social capital that comes out of that as well, which I think is one of the great um, sort of unheralded successes of open streets is just the sheer number of people it brings together to get these things done, and oftentimes in a limited time frame. So that's, that's a really exciting part of it for me. I think it makes it a great success. Fantastic. And uh, if, if people were going to take this advice, from the call today and go out and implement and do something first thing they, they do when they wake up tomorrow, uh, what would you recommend that is, Mike? Wow. Uh, one thing to do tomorrow. Um, yeah. I think you would want to um, write a list of who those people you need to work with are going to be and then start contacting them. Great. What about you, Rory? What's the, the one thing that people need to do tomorrow? Well, this is a little self-serving, but I would say go to YouTube and find this really cool video of FM Streets Alive. And uh, we had it professionally done. It's three minutes. Our whole purpose was to be able to have something that uh, we could show easily because it was hard to convey. So I would say go, and there's no, there are others, certainly, but there's one that's FM Streets Alive um, that's brand new in 2012 that's a good three-minute video that shows what an event could look like. And I think... A picture is worth a thousand words. All right, so they're going to go, they're going to watch your video, and I'm sure everyone's going to go to uh, openstreets.org as well. So what else, what's, once they've watched that video, what are they going to do, Rory? Um, then they're going to make a list of people that they can show it to. They're going to start asking um, groups to be able to speak to them about what they uh, would like to do, and they're going to have that video with them, or a video. And um, they're naturally going to find people who... Uh, who think this is a good idea, and they're going to find their supporters that way. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, thank you both for your time today, and thanks to everyone that joined the call. Um, sorry we, we were had a little bit of a shy audience today, um, 
normally we, we do love people to join in and, and chat with us. Uh, but I think we got through a lot of content here, and I feel really good that we've uh, we've been able to draw out so much of Rory and Mike's expertise to share. There are still a lot of questions in the document that are unanswered, so I'm sure that there are there are lots and lots of people on this call that have uh, a great amount of expertise and experience that they could also share. So please, if you see any unanswered questions, please do go in and, and feel free to write your own answers in there. Uh, and then we will make this document available through the communitymatters.org website. Visit our website and contact Street Plans or the Alliance, and we'd be happy to speak more with you about your initiatives. Fantastic. Thanks, Mike. Um, and uh, there will be there's a, a great blog on the Community Matters website that will that goes into a little detail on on both of the projects. And um, if you uh, if you do have further questions, please use the doc, uh, download the podcast, go watch Rory's video, check out. OpenStreets.org. Uh, there are a lot of resources out there for anyone thinking about doing any of these projects. But for now, uh, I, I hope everyone will join me in, in thanking both Mike and Rory for their time and the folks at Community Matters for helping host this call um, and to everyone that joined us to listen in today. Thank you very much. And we'll thank talk you. to you again soon. Thanks.